Welcome to the White Coat Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Certified Coach Paula White, MD. If you're a physician in academic medicine looking for skills to understand and take control of your experiences, both in work and out, this is a great place to start. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me again today. Today, I'm pulling from that crowdsourced list of topics again, and I decided to put a couple of topics together because they both relate to workplace expectations. And when I say workplace expectations, do I mean what you can expect of your workplace or do I mean what your workplace expects of you? Both. I'm going to limit it to two specific topics requested because I want you to think about similar issues that you have and think through how you might approach them. I have to make you work a little, otherwise it would be too easy. Okay, the first one was staff not following orders. I have to admit, when that one came in, I kind of thought, well, that's not a podcast topic because that's just ridiculous. How can any healthcare system function like that? And then I thought, hang on, check my privilege. I obviously work in a system where that would be considered unacceptable and there would be appropriate consequences. But if someone's asking this question, most likely they do not. So here we are. The first thing I want to do is run through some exercises to try and root out the thoughts and find the facts. This came to me as a comment on a social media post. It wasn't a two-way conversation. So I have no way of knowing what the actual situation is for that person. But the phrasing, staff not following orders, gives us a pretty good idea of that person's perception. I think it's safe to assume that the person believes there's a recurring theme of them giving orders and staff not completing them. And it's safe to guess that most people, if this was their perception, would probably feel something along the lines of disrespected. And most people, when they're feeling disrespected, would have actions and inactions like stewing about it, getting angry or annoyed every time they have to work, being in a foul mood, perseverating on all the times this has happened, conveniently forgetting all the times that orders have been followed perfectly, creating a story about why the orders weren't completed and what it means about the staff, deciding they're a victim here and staff are out to get them, and on and on. Anyone see the result? The result is they have no respect for the staff. You might also think that a result is they're behaving in a way that isn't going to earn them much respect, but remember, someone else's respect for us, or lack thereof, is what's happening in their model, not ours. So while it might be happening, it's not our model and it's not within our control. All right, pretty clear this is not a work environment that's going to bring anyone any joy, right? So we probably want to address this. Before even thinking about revising our thoughts, let's take a closer look at the situation and see if our perception is accurate anyway. When doing this, it's always best to start by turning the mirror to yourself. Am I communicating my orders in accordance with the highest standards per my workplace protocols? For most of us these days, that would mean putting the orders in the EMR since most of us have physician order entry. Or rather, it might mean your residents or fellows are placing the orders in the EMR. So either way, is this happening? Or am I giving verbal orders for things that aren't emergent and expecting them to be carried out even though I haven't put them in the EMR yet? If it's something urgent or relatively urgent, am I utilizing closed-loop communication? Or am I just assuming that the staff will have the opportunity to check the EMR and execute the order before it's overdue? 
Is my order consistent with usual standards for my unit? Or might I be requesting something that I know is evidence-based, but isn't consistent with current policies or protocols? If so, have I communicated this to the staff and offered supporting evidence? If it's something that should become part of policy or protocol, have I championed for this with the medical director, unit manager, whoever else might be involved in that process? And then we can examine what might be going on for the staff member. Remember, the standard assumption is that everyone is a reasonable, normal person who shows up to work wanting to do a good job. Looking at the situation through that lens, is their patient load too high? Could they have had an emergency with another patient and gotten delayed? Is there an ineffective communication system in place such that they might not even be aware of orders so there's no way for them to execute them in a timely fashion? Are they new on the job and needing more training or support? Is there, perhaps, a negative consequence they'll experience if they do follow your order? Here's an example of that last one that a friend of mine at a community hospital told me about. They were having a consistent problem with Pitocin not getting started on patients who came in overnight with ruptured membranes and not yet in labor. For the non-obstetricians, this is a problem because the longer a patient sits with ruptured membranes before delivery, the more chance there is of an infection developing, which is not great for either the patient or the baby. So for my friend and her partners, there was a perception that the nurses just don't follow their orders. However, they did a little investigation into why. Their anesthesia group is not in-house overnight. They take home call. And a few bad actors in that anesthesia group have been, on occasion, rude or even mean when they are called in from home at 3 a.m. for a labor epidural. So my friend and her partners found out that the nurses didn't want to start the Pitocin because then the patient might want an epidural and then they'd have to call in the anesthesiologist and it might be one of the ones who yells about it. It kind of changes everything, doesn't it? This has nothing to do with whether the staff does or does not respect the OBGYNs. It's a whole different issue that needs to be solved. And for all of my anesthesiology friends, you are amazing, and I'm so thankful for you every single day. And I don't mean for this example to suggest anything about your specialty. While we can all agree that in a just culture, it's never acceptable for anyone to yell at or berate a colleague, there's probably something behind the yelling, isn't there? Maybe the anesthesia group's call structure is such that they have to work a full OR day after being on OB night call. Maybe they're not getting any call pay because it's home call, but the anesthesiologists at the hospital across town do get pay for home call. I mean, would anyone be excited about getting called in under circumstances like those? For me personally, I would a million times rather take in-house call than home call, even unpaid in-house call. I like the separation of work and home. For the most part, when I'm home, I'm home. In-house call gives me a totally different mindset than home call. I'm there to work. Sure, I love it when all the action happens before midnight and then I spend the rest of the night in bed, but when it doesn't turn out that way, I never feel like I'm being put upon or asked to do unreasonable work. It's my shift. I'm there to work. Taking care of an ectopic or doing a cesarean or whatever at 3 a.m., those are reasonable expectations. 
And while I'm on this digression, I'll just add that thought work around home call is one of the most common topics that I coach doctors on. So it's safe to say I'm not the only one who doesn't love home call. But for the sake of demonstration, let's strip all of that away. Let's say we've looked at all of these things and it's pretty clear that there's no misunderstanding and you're giving your orders in the proper format, staff see them, your orders are consistent with usual practices and policies at your hospital, and your orders still aren't being completed. We could even take it one step further and say that you have evidence that it's only happening to you. You've checked in with your partners and other colleagues and this isn't going on for them. So we're creating a situation that's objectively at least a little victim-y. But we also know, since we're all getting so good at being responsible for our own emotions, that feeling victim-y feels like crap, and also it doesn't serve you. You start to believe you have no control, and feeling like you have no control is incredibly disempowering. Not a place we want to spend a lot of time in, that's for sure. So what it boils down to then is that you have two choices, change the situation or change your thoughts. Changing the situation can mean anything from escalating this all the way up whatever channels exist for this at your workplace, or advocating to create better systems for accountability and chain of command, or escalating this outside of your workplace as there are certainly state organizations who would have a problem continuing to license a practitioner of any kind who is in clear violation of their job requirements. Those are all examples of one way of changing the situation. Another way to change the situation is to remove yourself from it. You can decide from a clear-headed and rational place that it's your preference not to work for an organization that tolerates this. You can decide to leave and do it without villainizing anyone or anything. It can just be factual. These types of things are considered acceptable here, and I choose not to work at a place where these things are acceptable. Do you see how much cleaner that feels compared to all the victim-y stuff? If you leave a job because you feel like a victim there, you believe you had no choice but to leave. Not true, you always have a choice. And you believe you had no agency over yourself, which means the same things can happen to you again and again. No thanks. Plus, harboring all of that vitriol is like carrying a heavy backpack when you're trying to climb up that spiral staircase of wellness. It makes it super hard to gain any elevation and can even make you stop trying because it just feels too hard. So no thanks to that either. And if you decide you're not going to change the circumstances, or you have and as of now you have not been successful, and you're going to stay anyway, it sure would serve you to spend some time working on your narrative about why you're choosing to stay. Resist the temptation to believe you have no choice. That's nonsense. You always have a choice. But you can decide, I'm choosing to stay here because leaving now would mean disruption to X, Y, and Z, and I prefer not to disrupt those things for now. I really like the for now clause. It's so helpful to have it there to remind yourself, I can change my mind anytime I want. And then when the dissatisfier, whatever it is, happens at work, your mantra isn't, this is fine, everything's great. No, you don't try and sell yourself on a story that you don't want to believe and that isn't in alignment with your values. But it can be, I'm not a fan of this, I wish it wasn't happening, but for right now I'm deciding this is a lesser evil. 
There are tons of variations on this. In coaching, we do a lot of trying thoughts on to see what feels reasonable and true without straying into victim territory. Okay, and the other requested topic that I'm lumping in with this one was a really specific one, being asked to chart every 30 to 60 minutes on laboring patients. For the non-OB people out there, I can tell you objectively, this request is not consistent with standards of care for delivery providers. For the bedside nurse, yes. A1, the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses, has guidelines and recommendations for all sorts of things, including how often a laboring patient needs to be assessed and charted on, which varies depending on risk factors and circumstances. Most hospitals that have a labor and delivery unit derive their nursing policies from these guidelines. For the delivery provider, that is, the physician or midwife managing the labor and or birth, the expectations are very different. Since I'm in academics and the patient population is skewed to high risk, we're evaluating and charting on laboring patients a minimum of every two to four hours, more when anything of concern is going on. It's probably a lot less than that for very low-risk situations, especially at community hospitals. So even in my scenario, 30 to 60 minutes would be unreasonable. The most likely reasons I can think of for a hospital to require physician charting every 30 to 60 minutes are that A, the person writing their policies is completely confused about whose job it is to do what, or B, the hospital is in the midst of a staffing crisis and they know they don't have the appropriate nurse ratios and they're attempting to mitigate the safety risks of this by shifting some of the work to the docs. So again, the options are change the situation or change your thinking. There are lots of things that could be done to change the situation, and of course it would depend on what exactly was the driving force behind this policy. We don't need to go into the specifics. I think you can think these through on your own. But let's say you're going to stay and the situation isn't going to change. For simplicity, we'll make it the staffing crisis issue. Whatever your reasons are for staying, the story you tell yourself about it is going to determine your level of either job satisfaction or burnout. It might be a really compelling reason. You might work at a rural hospital, and if patients can't come there for delivery, they would have to drive hours and hours for care. That might be a great thing to focus on when times are tough and you're choosing to continue working in an environment that has what you feel are unreasonable expectations of you. I'm doing this for the patients. Whatever the situation may be, if you look hard enough, you can find your why. Two closing thoughts. First, if you choose to stay in a work situation with expectations you find unreasonable, that decision does not preclude you from also continuing to advocate for change. When I say you have two choices, either change the situation or change your thinking, they're not mutually exclusive. There can be a continuum. I tried one approach. It didn't get where I wanted. I'm settling in with better thoughts for now while I keep brainstorming for my next approach. Choosing to continue working in circumstances that you don't love doesn't mean, oh, well, I'm just going to take whatever they dish out without question. The second thing is a really common internal argument that a lot of folks come across when they think about trying to change a situation is, but I shouldn't have to do this. And that's probably true. 
you probably shouldn't have to do this. But if no one else is doing it and you want it done, isn't it better to take control and do it yourself rather than hoping someone else will? Especially, as is often the case in these situations, when all of the evidence to date is that no one else is going to do it. So when your brain offers to you that you shouldn't have to do this, just allow that thought to pass on through, you can agree with it if you want to, and then send it on its way. And on that note, we will wrap up for today. Thanks for joining me, and I will see you back next time. Any opinions or views on this podcast or on my website are my own and should not be attributed to my employer.